This is the Mindful Experiment Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Vic. Excited that you're here. This podcast is all about diving deep into the mind and understanding this experiment or this game we call life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is the Mindful Experiment Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Vic. Excited that you're here. This podcast is all about diving deep into the mind and understanding this experiment or this game we call life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Vic, and you're listening to another episode here on The Mindful Experiment. As each week, we share an interview with someone that we discuss some topic uh, to help elevate the mind, have a deeper understanding on things uh, when it comes to life in general and so forth. This week, we actually have a special interview. This is actually an addition to our normal week of what we do. So this is why the podcast is being released on a Wednesday uh, instead of our normal Friday, which we'll have another episode releasing on Friday. But this one was a, a great interview that we had. I was excited to have uh, to have this interview. Um, I got the chance to interview uh, one of the frontline American frontline doctors, um, Dr. Richard Amerling. And we talked all about COVID and there's so much misinformation out there. And I want to share this with you guys that I want my background is as, as, a, as a chiropractor. And so my studies relate to holistic health and different aspects of how do we help make the human body healthier? How do we help it thrive? How do we help it adapt? So all my studies and research, and I've been doing this for about 12 years now, where I spend two to four hours of reach researching things and it's anything related to health. It doesn't, not just chiropractic and neurology, but biochemistry, physiology, functional neurology, all these different things to just have a better understanding. Cause my philosophy is the better I know the science on things, the better of a doctor I can be to empower my patients, to help lead them and guide them to living healthier and better, more vibrant lives. And so throughout COVID, my message has actually been very against what mainstream media has been stating, not because I just like to be I'm anti-whatever. Um, it's just the science didn't add up and it wasn't showing up in the science. And there was good science coming out uh, even early on, and it was not being recognized. And so I wanted to then interview someone eventually. I asked, I asked a lot of people, uh, my listeners and people who follow me on social media, who would they want me to interview? And a lot of time, a lot of people ask for frontline American frontline doctors. And so I was like, you know, I'm going to make this happen one way or another. And so this interview is absolutely amazing. I had a blast um, chatting with Dr. Richard. Um, he is just a wealth of knowledge. You're going to see that. Uh, and he shares, he brings, he brings the science to what he's sharing. But for those who may not know who Dr. Amerling is, Dr. Amerling is a native New Yorker. He graduated, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher his high school here, uh, Stuart Vestant High School, earned a Bachelor of Science degree from the City College of New York and a medical degree at the Catholic University of Louvain in Brussels, Belgium. 
Dr. Emily completed his internship and residency in internal medicine at New York Hospital, Queens, in Flushing, New York, and a nephrology fellowship at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. From 1990 to 2016, Dr. Amling was on staff at the Beth Israel Medical Center, now Mount Sinai Beth Israel. There he developed a perineal dialysis program and a program for continuous renal replacement therapy in the ICU setting. He served as director of outpatient dialysis from 1995 to 2012. In October 2016, Dr. Amling accepted a position as a professor at the St. George University School of Medicine and taught there until July 2021. Dr. Amling is a board-certified by the American Board of Internal Medicine for Internal Medicine and Nephrology. He is the past president of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. He is on the editorial board of the Blood Purification. Dr. Emling has presented at numerous medical conferences, both nationally and internationally. Dr. Emling's work has been published as chapters and textbooks and as peer-reviewed medical journals. He is currently associate medical director of the American Frontline Doctors. He has a very nice, powerful rap sheet here. So it backs up his credentials of what he shares and his knowledge and wisdom on what he does. So with no further ado, I am so excited to share with you. Here's my interview with Dr. Richard Ammerling. Dr. Ammerling, thank you so much for taking time to be on the show. I think it's a great pleasure. I appreciate all the work you guys are doing with American Frontline Doctors and getting the, the imp- other an, a different viewpoint, a different perspective of what's been going on in the last couple of years, and especially how the media and what they did in June, t- July 2020, uh, trying to discredit and all those good things you guys kept pushing forward. Uh, I greatly appreciate your work and everything that you guys have been doing. So thank you for taking time to share with our tribe and everybody here at the Mindful Experiment. Oh, it's my pleasure. So, Doc, real quick, can you just share, my, my listeners know I like to get right into things with stories and what the individual, what, you, what the person does and so forth. So can you tell a little bit about your background as a doctor and your educational, your credentials and so forth? Well, Vic, I'm born and raised in New York City. I went to school in the city, including college. I went to City College, Stuyvesant High School. I went abroad for medical school over to Belgium and had a six-year deep dive into scientific medicine. Uh, And that really was the crucial point in my career, uh, formed my worldview in so many ways. Well, when I got back, I did my internship and residency in New York again. I did fellowship in nephrology down in Philadelphia, Hospital Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. And then I went to work in New York at Beth Israel Medical Center as an attending nephrologist and I was there for 26 years. At a certain point, Mount Sinai, by the way, nephrology for those out there who don't know is, the, is medicine involving kidney disease. So hypertension, kidney failure, dialysis, that sort of thing. Uh, in 2015, Mount Sinai took over our wonderful little hospital and they proceeded to destroy it. And I did not wanna hang out and watch the end game. So I took a position as a full-time professor of clinical skills at St. George's University in Grenada, down in, in the Caribbean. And I lived there for four plus years. When the, when the pandemic hit, they uh, decided to close the school. And then subsequently they were about to close down the island entirely and shut it off from the world, which uh, prompted me to go back up to the States I ended up volunteering as a nephrologist at Bellevue Hospital in in Manhattan from April through August of 2020. So I did catch the worst of the pandemic. Uh, There was a lot of kidney disease and and, and my skills were were needed there. Uh, When the ICUs emptied out, I would say by the end of May and June, I felt, well, this is over, right? You know, we, the, thing, the thing has peaked and it's gone down and, and that's it, that's the, that's the epidemic. But of course, we know now that that was not allowed to happen, right? They kept, they kept the, the fear going. Uh, they, they magnified cases, right? That was the way they did it. They, they decided that a PCR positive test would be henceforth called a case, even though the person was completely asymptomatic. Now, this is a departure, right? We, we don't consider a case as simply a positive test, except, by the way, in the case of HIV. So if you're HIV positive, then you're a case of HIV, whether you're symptomatic or not. And interestingly, you know who was behind this. This was our old friend, Dr. Tony Fauci. 
<laughs> who, who was behind the HIV pandemic, so-called pandemic. A lot of similarities there. And I, by the way, very strongly recommend that everybody get and read the uh, RFK Jr. book about Fauci. It is so well done and it is so eye-opening that even for me, who, who was lived through the HIV period as a, an intern and resident, a lot of this stuff was new to me, what was actually going on behind the scenes. And it, it, it's well worth reading. Um, and Fauci is not a good person. Okay, let's put it that way. So uh, <clears throat> I, I started to, of course, was following this extremely closely. Uh, it was uh, unbelievable. There was new information every day. It was uh, an experience that uh, you know is once in a lifetime for a, for a physician to be on the front lines of this uh, epidemic, especially in New York. Uh, but again, it should have gone away and it didn't. And that of course raised my red flag. Uh, I, I felt that this is something else. It's not about the virus. Why are the lockdowns going on? The lockdowns never made sense. I was never in favor of them. It was never going to be a good idea, simply from a risk benefit point of view, which is how physicians are trained to look at things. What is the risk? What's the benefit? The benefit was unknown, but likely to be minimal because this, this has never been uh, the, the strategy before to isolate healthy people, which is what the lockdowns did. But the risks were obviously going to be huge. The downside was obviously going to be huge. And of course that has played out and uh, it has been horrifically destructive. So this was a really the worst public policy uh, initiative ever, the lockdowns. The lockdowns of course came after the peak of the epidemic. So they didn't even stop spread. They were absolutely ineffectual in, ter in terms of stopping the, or slowing the spread. They just inflicted misery and economic destruction. Uh, over on the West Coast, a doctor, Dr. Simone Gold, was experiencing up, up close and personal medical tyranny in that she was being prevented from prescribing hydroxychloroquine to patients at her ER job in California. So she, together with a group of other doctors who had been using these drugs and treating patients with COVID, uh, banded together and they, they formed this group, America's Frontline Doctors. I believe in June, they held a, uh, a meeting in Washington, D.C. And part of that was a what they called the White Coat Summit on the steps of the Supreme Court building. That was videoed and it went viral with over 20 million views in a few hours before it was taken down, of course. People were hungry for the truth. They were not getting it, of course, from our official organizations. And that launched that organization and they've become quite large and have been instrumental, I believe, in pushing back against the tyranny. You know, This is not just a medical issue at this point. It's a question of what happened to our rights, our constitutional rights to earn a living, to travel, to speak freely, all these things have been trampled upon over the last two years. So America's Frontline Doctors is the key organization that has been pushing back against this. I love that. And I appreciate what you guys have been doing, like I said earlier. It, do you think like, because you guys came out, talk, start talking about hydrochloroquine, and, do you, and I think Trump came out before talking about something similar to that or he, he was he was a big big component of it do you think that kind of hindered the message because anything trump said whether it was good or bad he was just blasted on throughout the, no matter what did that kind of like hinder that message in any way i think that that was not a big factor frankly the campaign against hydroxychloroquine began much earlier than trump before even before trump even knew about it they were already campaigning against it how, how do we know this well, in France, hydroxychloroquine was available over the counter. Their minister of health, who, by the way, was fired for her mishandling of the whole COVID crisis, Agnes Buzin is her name, uh, took it off the over-the-counter status arbitrarily in France and put it into the group of dangerous drugs. So made it unavailable, essentially, to French citizens. She ended up taking a, getting a plum job at the World Health Organization. So it's, it's pretty easy to connect the dots. But the campaign against hydroxychloroquine, I believe was launched by the Fauci types and Big Pharma because 
an effective outpatient, cheap treatment for COVID-19 would have made the vax completely unnecessary and they would not have been able to get the emergency use authorization for it had there been an effective early treatment. So this is why the campaign uh, against hydroxychloroquine and later ivermectin was launched. And it was unprecedented in, in modern history for sure, uh, because of the extent to which they to, to which they went to cover it up, to cover up the positive results that doctors were getting with these drugs, censoring massively. Uh, you could not talk about this on any of the social media platforms. The news, mainstream news media did not cover it. And doctors were getting excellent results. And starting in France with Didier Raoult, who's one of the smartest guys out there, uh, using hydroxychloroquine in his clinic down in Marseille, Zev Zelenko up in upstate New York, Brian Tyson over on the West Coast in California, were treating patients early with hydroxychloroquine and keeping people out of the hospital. They were getting fabulous results. Uh, and why shouldn't this have been widely known? This cover-up of the good, good results with this drug cost probably hundreds of thousands of people's lives. It's sad and it's pennies, right? It, it's not even that expensive to be utilized. And I, I know the research shows too, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, where it, if you can get it early on, the, 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 the prognosis leading forth and what's going to lead up to the, the, the results at the end are just, it, it's, it's night and day of how much it can help. That's right. Early treatment is key. And uh, this is what my colleague, Dr. McCullough talks about all the time. And he was one of the first and the first in terms of a uh, top ranked academic internist cardiologist to put his career on the line basically uh, to support this concept of early treatment. So we owe him a great deal of credit. He also published two articles outlining a pathophysiological approach to COVID-19 that was tremendously downloaded, widely quoted, uh, and kind of showed the way, showed everybody how to address this disease early on when you still have a good chance of keeping people out of the hospital, which is the, the key. Keep them out of the hospital, keep them off the ventilators, and they will survive. Once you get into the hospital and your oxygenation deteriorating to the point and you can't support your breathing, you get put on a ventilator, your mortality gets extremely high. So trying to, so waiting for that to happen, which was the NIH guideline, okay? They said, you know, there is no outpatient treatment, just stay home. Uh, if you can't breathe, call 911, then we'll come bring you into the hospital and, and uh, then we'll help you. At that point, it's mostly too late. So the nihilistic approach to the disease taken by the official organizations, the NIH and the WHO, CDC, were uh, killing people, literally killing people. And this is one of the areas that I've been talking about lately, which is how did this happen? How did doctors lose their mojo in terms of getting out there and aggressively taking care of sick patients early on? Uh, it is an incredible abdication by the vast majority of practicing doctors who failed to do this. And there are many reasons for this, which we can get into. That's my next question, because it's like you, I, I know I know at least a handful of people um, where they've had shortness of breath. They go get a PCR test. They're positive. Then they're, they're They go, OK, what, what should we do? They go to the hospital and the hospital just has them. The standard of care there is just like, OK, we're going to monitor and watch. And as things progressively get worse and their oxygen get low, then they pump them on. They put them on a ventilator. And 83, I think the last time I've read 83 percent of the time, they're going to pass away because from being on the ventilator and the damage it does. And it's one of those things, you know, is that I also believe as much as we they've covered up H, uh, hydrochloroquine and, and ivermectin and other things like that. Um, also, the way they're taking care of patients, uh, I think, is also adding to the, the mix. What's your opinion on all that? It's absolutely true. The the, the uh, protocol driven care once you get into the hospital is horrific. It's so bad medically. And it is responsible for people dying. There's just no question about it. And this is true for many reasons. One is that 
inadequate doses of corticosteroids are being used. They're talking, they're, they, the protocols indicate that you should use dexamethasone, which is one of the weaker corticosteroids, and only six milligrams, which is a very low dose. These people should be on very high dose of prednisone or prednisolone, and <clears throat> they're not getting it. So when you get into the cytokine storm phase, the, in, the inflammatory syndrome is what's killing you, and you need, the, you need to be very uh, heavy-handed almost with the uh, corticosteroids, the immunosuppressive drugs to suppress this inflammatory response. So that's number one. Number two is that virtually everybody is given remdesivir. And remdesivir is a so-called antiviral. It's actually an antimitotic. It inhibits DNA synthesis. So it attacks healthy cells too, okay? It's an anti-cancer drug, fundamentally, that they said is going to now be used for, uh, for COVID. This was pushed through by Fauci personally at the behest, I believe, of Gilead, who manufactures the drug. The drug, even the, what, the so-called pivotal trial, which is the trial that is used to get authorization, was uh, just a failure, right? It was a negative study, fundamentally. It didn't improve any serious endpoint. It, it uh, shortened the hospital length of stay by a day or two. That's, that's not an adequate reason to prescribe a toxic drug. The drug was known to be toxic to the liver and kidney. Uh, it was used in a study uh, in a trial against Ebola with uh, three other drugs as comparators. And the patients getting uh, remdesivir were dying at such a high rate that they pulled it out of the study. So it's a known toxic drug. And why would you use any drug? It doesn't work, number one, but one that is toxic to throw that at patients who are extremely sick with no chance of benefit and only risk of harm is a violation of the most fundamental principle of medicine, which is to do no harm and to balance risk versus benefit. If there is gonna be a benefit to remdesivir, and I don't really think there is, it would have to be in the first few days of the illness because that's when the virus is actively replicating. To give it to them at, at, at a later stage when there is no viral replication going on is I think malpractice. So malpractice is the standard of care at most hospitals in the United States right now. And patients are dying as a result. It's, it's so sad. It's so many lives lost just because this is something I've been hearing. I have friends in the, who are nurses and, and some docs, and I'll try to get a pulse of what's going on. And it's, it's amazing when they share, I had a story and I share it with them and they're like, oh, this is, we've seen this happen multiple times. And this is kind of the procedures, what we're seeing. And I'm just like, that's so heartbreaking because there's so many things out there um, that can be utilized to kind of shift the gears on this. Right. And the most important being early treatment. And those that get early treatment, the vast majority stay out of the hospital. Uh, Brian Tyson, who I know personally, treated over 6,000, maybe he's up to 10,000 patients right now. Uh, almost no deaths and almost no hospitalizations with effective early treatment. That's how good it is. So to have denied this to so many people is uh, really horrific. We've never, again, we've never seen anything like it. These doctors should have been put up on pedestals and emulated. Dr. Zelenko should have got should get the Nobel Prize. Didier Raoult has done incredible work. And hydroxychloroquine was not just pulled out of a hat. This drug had known antiviral properties, and it was used in trials during the SARS-CoV-1 period back in the early 2000s. Fauci knew about it. Fauci wrote about it. So this is not some incredible uh, mystery. It was clear that this drug was effective and to block its use is criminal. And hopefully people will be punished for this. That's the thing I'm hoping for that too, because you, you brought up like, the SARS-CoV-1. And I know like I've heard Simone Gold say this, where the COVID-2 is not really a true novel virus because of its genetic sequencing and so forth. Um, and that's why, you know, with chloroquine back then they used, uh, and this is, you know, hydrochloroquine and same being very similar, that they knew that there could be the potential of being able to work as well as it has. And now the research supports it massively. Um, 
is there is 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 COVID SARS-CoV-2 is that a true novel virus or is the genetic sequencing not that vast of a difference to call it that? And then what's that standard too? Because I I couldn't find that when I was trying to research that. Well, it's novel in the sense that it's man-made. Okay, I I don't think there's any argument anymore about this. This was made in the lab. We have the we have the receipts, as they say, in the form of papers published in Nature magazine, for, uh, for, for example, by Ralph Barrick from University of North Carolina, co-author Zengli Shi, the Batwoman from Wuhan Institute of Virology, research funded by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, i.e. Tony Fauci, uh, and also sponsored by the government of China, done at University of North Carolina. So we help them uh, with their gain-of-function research this was clear from this paper that they were creating a more aggressive, more contagious uh, virus that was going to more easily infect human beings. It's spelled out in the paper. It couldn't be more clear. And this was known, by the way, back in March and April of 2020. In fact, Alex Jones, God bless his soul, had a person on who discussed this, Francis Boyle, a lawyer who is an expert in bioweapons. Um, so this is man-made, so it is unique in that sense, but it's a variation on a known coronavirus, SARS-CoV-1, which according to some, including Dr. David Martin, was also manufactured. Um, so yeah, it's novel in that sense, but, it, it, but we have experience with coronaviruses and also our immune system has experience with coronaviruses. I mean, the common cold is a coronavirus for the most part, very often. Uh, pe people who were exposed to SARS-CoV-1 had antibodies and T cells that recognized SARS-CoV-2. So it's not all that different. Uh, calling it novel, of course, makes the makes uh, is part of the narrative to create panic and fear that no one was going to be able to fight off this new virus, and that was a big part of the uh, fear campaign was that everybody was going to die from this when we knew very early on that those who were getting very sick and dying were either the very elderly or those who were obese and had diabetes. These were the major issues. If you were younger, under 70 even, and uh, metabolically reasonably healthy, you were not gonna die from COVID-19. COVID uh, you, you could get sick, but you were not gonna have a seriously bad outcome. <clears throat> so this idea, that we were all equally at risk was part of the fear campaign to make everybody accept lockdowns. Uh, the, the myth of asymptomatic transmission also. Everybody has to live in fear, become massively germophobic, wear a mask, wear two masks, stay inside, don't come near anybody. Everybody's gonna infect you and kill you. The, the fear campaign was major. This was a huge part of what they did. Uh, the media played along, of course, talking initially about the numbers of dead when during the peak of this last in the spring of 2020. And of course, when the death numbers started to decline, they shifted seamlessly into case counting. And the cases we know were generated by massive testing with a PCR test that was known to be producing mostly false positives at that point, the way they were doing it. So we were being terrorized by a false positive PCR test caseidemic. And that's how they kept the fear going when there was really nothing going on in the hospitals. It's, it's amazing how they could still try to push that narrative, even today, uh, where they're like, yes, most of the hospitals are still jammed because of vaccinated, unvaccinated individuals who are there and they're filling up the hospitals. And then, of course, you you reach out and talk to people and they're like, no, it's because we're short staffed because of what they're trying to mandate, not because of that. And and yeah, there's there, you know now hospitals are. I've been seeing some reports of them actually showing. I just had a, I don't have it off the top of my head right here, but or showing up here now. But uh, I was reading a report of there were some hospitals showing like there was I think it was like seventy something that were vaccinated versus fifty something that weren't that were actually in the hospital right there being hospitalized. And I'm just like, this this has got to get out there to start to shift and start to have people see that even if you do get that false sense. Before I get into those questions, though, the PCR test, would, 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 did, 
my always question was, is why were they using that when even Kerry Mullins came out and said that you just cannot tell you if you're sick or not. And still, they, they pushed it through the whole system. And even Fossey in 2020 in July was on a podcast stating the way we do our cycle thresholds, um, you can put almost anything in there and get a positive. Um, why was this the, the, the use to be utilized? Was it just to you know, get those false positives to make it look worse than what it was? Or was there an agenda? What, 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 what's your thoughts? It, it has to be intentional. It has to be. Because they knew immediately that the way they were doing these tests with 40 and higher uh, cycles was producing mostly false positives. You amplify a tiny piece of RNA. And as Carrie Mullis said, you can, you can find almost any molecule you want and amplify it. And there are very few molecules that don't exist in one as one copy in the human body. So he was an extremely smart guy, and it's just too bad he died when he died because he would have been a great uh, critic of what was going on and with great credibility as the inventor of the PCR te technology. Yeah, no, they, they knew this right away. The PCR test was adopted virtually overnight in January 2020. Did you know that? January 20th or so, 21st, it was submitted the paper that that uh, described this technique was submitted by uh, Corman and Drosten. Christian Drosten is a, you know, he's like the German version of Fauci uh, to a magazine called, uh, I believe, Euro Surveillance. It was accepted immediately. It could not possibly have gone through peer review. And that was immediately adopted by the WHO as the standard, the gold standard test for COVID-19. Uh, uh, was it validated? Barely. I mean, who knows? A group of scientists wrote a critique of the study pointing to at least 10 extremely serious methodological flaws, and they submitted it to the journal and demanded that the paper be retracted. They never really got a response. So PCR testing undergirded the case endemic, and the massive testing of asymptomatic individuals just generated huge numbers of so-called cases. When you consider every test that we, that we use in medicine has a false positive and a false negative rate. False positive rate are people that test positive but don't have a disease. Now, if you even give a 1% false positive rate to this test, which is probably generous because it's probably higher, if you test a million people and 1% of them are positive because of a false positive, that's, what is it, uh, 10,000 10, 10, uh, positive cases right there. And they were testing millions of people. So it's reprehensible, but that's what was done. And you're right, they're doing it again. It, it astonishes me that they're doing exactly the same playbook now with Omicron, which is a mild, cold-like infection in most people. People, do not go for a PCR test. Do not. If you're sick, it may be of some value. We, we do want to know if you're positive, if you get a significant upper respiratory infection. If you have the sniffles, don't go get a PCR test. It's, uh, it's likely going to be a false positive, then you're going to be forced to quarantine. Your contacts are going to be quarantining. It's disruptive and unnecessary. These tests should not be done except in a clinical setting where there are significant symptoms and we, we really need to know what the organism may be. It's one of the things you bring up about the PCR testing that my, my like, I just, I love looking at data and just looking at research and I look at the, the patterns like ammonia, uh, that's dropped tanked in 2020 like crazy or look at last year's flu was basically non-existent to a, to a specific degree and and doctors and, and of course they use the mask as a way of saying well it's because everybody was wearing masks that's why and I'm like really that's that's where's the data on that I would love to see it because I've studied 10 I looked at 10 randomized control studies and none of them support that but it's it's and you know you look at these these this, these different things and even now I don't even think the flu is even back to where it was I don't have any data to, to support that but I haven't heard much about it say it's making a comeback but it, it's one of those things where 
you know, wishing people would just catch on and see the game. But it's like, no matter what, no matter what you say, no matter what you try to showcase, showing logical, reasonable research and data, it, it, it they still have a fight or they'll still be like, nope, this is what it is. This is what they're saying. And that's it. And there's like this trust or this like cult mentality of no matter what you show the person, nope, this is what the, the people are, our leaders telling us. And this is what we have to follow. Right. That is the, the, uh, the tyranny of evidence-based medicine, which is something I've written about. Everybody believes these uh, white coat types, Fauci, et cetera, that they have authority and that they're using the so-called best evidence to make these proclamations. Fauci famously never really cites any evidence in any of his uh, pronouncements. He is evidence-free. He's not evidence-based, he's evidence-free. And Scott Atlas said this in his book, which I haven't read, it's on my list, uh, that whenever he would show up at these, meeting, at these meetings, the White House task force, the COVID task force, he was the only one who ever brought any scientific articles. Everybody else was just shooting from the hip based on what they thought or felt, but there was no data, there was no evidence, there was no science. He was the only one. And that's how they've been driving this. But they, they claim <clears throat> the mantle of authority and, and science. I mean, Fauci even says he is science, right? <laughs> you're not attacking me, you're attacking, you're attacking science. I mean, the guy is a complete egomaniac. Please, folks, read the RFK Jr. book. It is so good. Uh, you, you'll, you'll be shocked and sickened in a way by what this guy has gotten away with in his career. Um, but no, really, the the, uh, the PCR tests don't do it. Okay, they're they're pushing the case academic again. Uh, these are going to be. I, I assume that anybody with a positive PCR who is uh, otherwise healthy, no symptoms, that's a false positive, because that's really what it is. I mean, ninety plus percent are going to be false positives. So why should we even do the test? It has zero value as a screening test. It can only be of value in a situation where there is a clinical case that it might correspond to COVID, right? That's the only value of the test. It should otherwise not be done. All right, guys, we're going to take a quick break here. Here is a word from our sponsor. My name is Will. And I'm Karen. And unlike Mulder and Scully, we both want to believe. So we've embarked on a journey of discovery. We've talked to people deeply entrenched in the spiritual and metaphysical world. We've thrown ourselves into weird and wonderful experiences. I even joined a coven of witches. And, wait, you joined a coven? Yep, all in the interest of finding something. Anything. That will prove that there's something beyond this physical. Three-dimensional world we all live in. This is The, the Skeptic, Skeptic Metaphysicians. Metaphysicians. Join us every week as we explore a new corner of this weirdly wonderful universe. Universe. Always keeping a pragmatic eye on the subject. We don't live entirely in the woo. The woo? The woo. What's a woo? You know, the woo. That doesn't help me. The woo-woo, you know. Oh, the woo-woo. Why didn't you say that? Pretty sure I did. Catch us on your favorite podcast platform. Or across the world on select radio stations. The Skeptic Metaphysicians. Your world will never be the same. All right, let's get back to this rocking episode. Now, have they ever, you know, my understanding with viruses and stuff, to know what you have, you have to isolate it. Have they ever even isolated the virus to know, like, this person has it, whether this person does or doesn't, or anything like that? It's not done routinely, but the virus has been isolated. And I think that we should try to get away from this narrative that it doesn't exist or it's never been isolated. It doesn't really uh, further anyone's argument. Clearly, it exists. Clearly, there is a clinical syndrome produced by this virus. The virus was manufactured, therefore it exists, okay? Let's be clear about that. The current version, the Omicron version, is a mild virus. It's a mild, clinically mild infection. Many people don't even recognize that they've had it. Uh, others will have a cold, a cold-like uh, syndrome for a few days. In a way, it's a uh, we're calling it sort of an, like an attenuated viral vaccine. It's a way to give people immunity without much harm. Uh, and in that sense, it's a blessing. And it's a further example of how these, this whole crisis 
should have been over a long time ago, but it's, it's definitely over now. We're talking about an endemic flu-like illness, viral, uh, cold-like illness that uh, is going to be very contagious, but extremely mild and will grant immunity. Uh, it's, the, it's the end of the whole thing. We should just be out in the street celebrating. No one should be wearing a mask. Nobody should be social distancing. There should not even be a suggestion of locking any, anything or anyone down. And no one should be pushing shots. The shots must stop. Yeah, I agree with you on all this. I mean, I remember when it first came out, I was like looking at research and I was like, if this is you know a novel virus in the case that it is, then it's two years. And if you look at Spanish flu, you look at Hong Kong flu, it's like two years. And it just then it just circulates, becomes part of our world. And it's also the other thing too, like every time, from my understanding, every time a virus mutates, it's going to weaken or get less virulent, but it will be more contagious. And it's, that's been the narrative because I would educate my patients and be like, listen to what they're saying on the news. Notice they're not saying the word deadly anymore. They're saying contagious. And they're trying to freak you out on that because they technically, from a scientific standpoint, they cannot say deadly because every time it mutates, it's going to get less and less deadly as we go on. And here we are two years later. And like you're saying, it's 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 like a, just a cold. It's part. Of, it's contagious, highly contagious. But other than that, it's just you know, it's it's there to allow for us to uh, our immune system to adapt with it, take it in, process it, and then let the, the immunity take take forth and, and adapt to that process. Yeah, that's right. This is called Mueller Mueller's ratchet, which is the natural tendency of viral epidemics, particularly to evolve towards uh, less virulent strains. And this has been observed with every viral epidemic uh, ever, as far as I know, because it's very obvious if a very nasty bug, like the first Wuhan uh, uh, variant, uh, kills the host, that host is not gonna be able to spread the virus any further. It will die with the, with the host. Viruses need human or animal cells to manufacture copies of themselves. Okay? They're incomplete life forms. They don't have the machinery to manufacture copies of themselves. In other words, to reproduce. They must hijack an animal cell to get their machinery to make the proteins that they need to assemble themselves in those cells. So without a host, they die. If they kill the host quickly, those strains tend to select themselves out. And what's left behind are the strains that live in a symbiotic relationship with the host long enough for that host to go out there, cough and sneeze a few times and spread them, spread their progeny. So uh, natural selection favors an indolent, contagious virus. And that's what we have now. So that is a perfect demonstration of Mueller's ratchet. What's potentially scary is the Vax campaign, which uh, has been uh, decried by noted virologist Luc Montagnier from France and Gert uh, Vandenbosch from Belgium. Both of these men were saying, if you do a mass vaccination during a pandemic, you're going to create an emergent strain that is going to resist those shots. Now, my view is the shots never really worked. And if you look carefully at the Pfizer study and the Moderna studies, their conclusions are hardly uh, brilliant. I mean, the 95% uh, vaccine efficacy number that they tout, for example, is a relative risk reduction. If you look at the absolute risk reduction, which is really the important number, it's uh, less than 1%, 0.7% in the case of Pfizer. And of course, no one has told this, and true informed consent, you would have to tell individuals that that's your benefit, right? That's your benefit right there. You have a 0.7% chance of doing of not getting a serious infection. That's, that's what should have been said. They do not prevent transmission. They don't prevent mortality. They don't prevent hospitalization or serious disease. And if you look at all-cause mortality, it's actually worse in the vaccinated groups. So... These studies were fraudulent, in my view. The shots never worked. Therefore, they probably didn't contribute that much to creating, for example, Delta. Uh, Delta likely would have emerged on its own. But uh, these scientists are arguing that we're going to be seeing not only resistant uh, variants, but also more lethal variants. 
Now, so far that hasn't happened, but if we keep giving these shots, it may. And, and the other piece of evidence that is now coming out is that the shots suppress the immune system and make people more likely to get infected. And what we, what we see then is negative vaccine efficacy, where the vaccinated individuals get COVID at a higher rate than unvaccinated. And that is what is being seen now in England. And when you look at the English data, which is, I think, reliable to the extent that uh, they are reporting these numbers much more accurately than we are in the States, they, <clears throat> they do show this negative vaccine efficacy emerging where the vaccinated individuals get sicker and, and at a higher rate than unvaccinated. So there is a perturbation of innate immunity that's induced by the shots. And this is potentially extremely serious and these shots must be stopped right away. I couldn't agree with you more on that. That's been a warning sign I've been trying to share and educate and get out there as much as I possibly can uh, because the data is showing it. I mean, I remember when I was, Israel was leading the way and you look at how much they vaccinated their their entire, um, you know, their, their, their country and so forth with the highest ones. And they still are continuing to have, don't quote me now, but I know a few weeks ago I was reading where they have the highest cases per capita in the world for COVID. Yeah, every country... <clears throat> <clears throat> that had a big rollout, <clears throat> experienced a big surge in cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. And it, so it has to be vaccine-related, in my view. And I'm sure that it is related to this immune suppression that's occurring. Uh, and, of course, maybe a false sense of security. People think, oh, they got the shot, they're protected. No, you're not. <laughs> you're not protected. Uh, you're you're just, as much, uh, just as much risk, if not more than the unvaccinated. The other trick that, the, that was used was <clears throat> they don't consider you vaccinated until two weeks after your second shot. When we know that there is a lot of infection and death after the first shot. So they should be collecting the data from shot number one and include all of those patients and cases into the vaccinated group. Most are not, they're, they're not considered vaccinated until two weeks after their second shot. This was true, by the way, in the studies, the, in the trials of these, of these uh, so-called vaccines. They only really started to count events after, two weeks after the second shot. This violates what we call the intention to treat protocol, which is, how, which is that once you randomize individuals into a placebo group or, or an active group, they are counted, even if they don't get a single shot, they are counted in that group. And that is the only acceptable way to do a scientific study. But they violated that principle in the studies and now in the subsequent reporting. So you must include these first few weeks because there we know that there is a big spike. And recently, this was put up in uh, Alberta, Canada. They, they published their numbers in graph form uh, showing exactly this, that the majority of infections, like over 50% or so of infections occurred uh, within 14 days of the first shot. And normally they would not be counted as such. They would be lumped into the unvaccinated. They put this stuff up and immediately, almost immediately took it down because <laughs> they, they didn't want people to see this. But of course, some very savvy guys uh, did screenshots and they kept it. So we know for a fact that this is happening. And the narrative, if people really look, is crumbling. And that's one of the reasons why they're getting so aggressive. And, and that, to me, explains this uh, recent Homeland Security memo where they're trying to lump those of us who don't believe the official narrative about COVID into the category of uh, insurgents and violent uh, domestic terrorists. That's just crazy, right? You think about that for a second, and it's like, 
wow, you, 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 are we living back in 1942 Germany or something along those lines? I, I remember I was interviewing a, a gentleman who his family came from uh, Hungary and so forth. So the, his family and him um, both experienced World War II, Stalin, the whole nine yards and everything. And I asked him a question. And I just said, the playbook that they're using um, with everything going on, how much does that does that resonate to Nazi Germany or does that look like Stalin? He goes, it's a, literally how they're trying to shut people up and do what they're doing is literally a playbook right out of Stalin's book. And it's just crazy when you now you're bringing this up and it's like, holy cow. I mean, I remember hearing stories that they're going to try to quiet up the people as much as they can, the resistance, because it's it's starting to people are starting to wake up. Look, what, look at just Joe Rogan, all the heat he's getting um, just for having guests on and having a conversation, just a conversation that's against the narrative. Uh, and it's one of the things where it's like. You know, is it going to, are they going to pursue that? Is that going to be something that, is it like a bluff for now, but then later down the road, kind of like what they do is they give you a heads up, like, hey, we may have to mask and put a lockdown, but we don't know yet. And then all of a sudden, two weeks later, we're here. And two years later, we're still here. Um, is that going to be more of like a bluff kind of situation or is this something that'll be implemented later on? Well, even as a bluff, it's a scary concept. I, I believe it is. I believe it's to intimidate. I don't think they're going to go out and round up McCullough and Corey and and uh, and Ryan Cole, my friends, and throw them in jail for inciting an insurrection. That would truly inspire a big revolt. I would hope. I think they're trying to do this to to as a threat to those of us who are speaking out, and that's why we must continue to speak out. We cannot be intimidated by this sort of a Stalinist tactic. It really is right out of Stalin and Mao's playbook. And that tells you who's running the government, okay? Does it not? <laughs> if there was ever any doubt that these are, these are the people who are behind our federal government, it should be dispelled. <clears throat> Clearly, they're using exactly these techniques. Um, so they're identifying themselves, if you will. And I think it's because they're getting desperate because their narrative is falling apart because people can see with their own eyes that the shots don't work. They can see that people are having horrible adverse reactions, including deaths. There's this uh, insurance guy who came out with a 40% increase in mortality in 2021. So yeah, then leading up to like talking about with with the with the vaccine, there's been also talks like with MRA, um, excuse me, mRNA technology and so forth. And like we're looking at cases where it does more harm to where like myocarditis, that's been the popular thing that's been trying to get discredited of potentials. And and I know like chiropractors and other professional health professionals I, I, I communicate with, they're like on social media would be going, look at the data of how many children have myocarditis at the, you know, at this state before they were going to roll out the vaccine to younger children. And we're like, if you start seeing cases of it, know that this is not something that is normal. Um, are those implications? I know blood clotting is another one that's come up a lot with people getting the vaccine. I know there's the VAERS studies, VAERS coming out with people reporting stuff, but uh, those numbers get downplayed. The Department of Justice came out with stuff and then all of a sudden they started pulling that low, they lowered the numbers after their initial release of them. Um, is it, you know, is there, is it truly, are there, there, is there, not only does it not work the vaccine to where, you know, it still continues spread, still does all that and, and whatnot, but is there also harm to the human body and someone's health? Oh yeah, there is definite harm. And the, the messenger RNA, lipid nanoparticles containing the messenger RNA go throughout the body. This is now known and this was hidden. This information was hidden and people assumed that the shock was going to stay localized in the shoulder muscle. Uh, <clears throat> group of scientists petitioned in Japan to get the data uh, released on, by a Freedom of Information Act. And they got a study that was released that was done in animals that showed that the shots went out of the muscle and throughout the body, localizing in different tissues, and in particular in the ovaries in females. So the messenger RNA takes over a cell in a way like a virus infection, sim similar to a virus infection, and, and, asks that, and gets that cell to produce a spike protein. It is known since a study done by the Salk Institute 
that the spike protein in and of itself creates disease. It activates platelets, it attaches to receptors in the lining of the of blood vessels, the endothelial layer, and uh, will cause manufacture of this, uh, it will activate uh, clotting. So this is one of the major complications from the shots is uh, blood clots. And uh, funeral directors are now reporting in vaccinated individuals, these massive clots that they're pulling out of their blood system when they try to inject the formalin to preserve the body. Uh, and this has never, never been seen before. Now there is a certain amount of clotting that occurs once someone dies, but nothing like this. These are organized clots, meaning that they've been around for a long time, for weeks, and they probably were proximate cause of death in some of these individuals. So blood clotting is a major thing. If the uh, <clears throat> messenger RNA is producing spike protein in cardiac cells, heart cells, those heart cells will then express that protein and be attacked by our immune system. And that is gonna cause inflammation of the heart, which is myocarditis, okay? So myocarditis is never mild. Uh, you may recover from it if, it if this spike protein is cleared quickly enough, but there's gonna be some damage and how much damage is impossible to predict. So to take any chances like this, especially with young people is beyond the pale. And, and they're now pushing this. I mean, the FDA is having a hearing to get to authorize Pfizer's uh, uh, vaccine in those uh, down to five, I believe. If they kill one child with these shots, to me, that's equivalent to murder. Uh, this is known. It's, they know that this is going to happen. It's so sad. And that, that explains a lot too, because you see, you hear about athletes around the world. I think I forgot what the number's up to now, where they just all healthy athletes doing their thing and all of a sudden just drop down the floor and that's it. They're done. And they, they pass on. And, and I've, I've people sometimes tell me, oh, myocarditis, this is inflammation of the heart. And I go, myocarditis is damage to the heart. And can you just correct me if I'm wrong? Once you damage the heart, the body, it doesn't repair like a muscle would, like your normal musculature. Right. Well, even muscle cells don't really repair, but you can you can compensate by building up building up other muscles, muscle cells. But yeah, th those cells are lost. Okay, damage to the heart is irreversible. Um, you may survive it, but you you may be impaired. You know, you may end up getting heart failure down the down the road. Heart failure has a very high mortality rate. It's not something that you want to give to a young person who has a whole lifetime ahead of them. And again, we have to go back to the risk-benefit calculation. If there is no benefit from a procedure, you don't do it. And you certainly don't tolerate any kind of risk. So even a small risk in a, uh, for a procedure that carries zero benefit should not, be, should not be acceptable. You only accept risk if the benefit is commensurate. And it certainly is not here because these young people are not at serious threat from the disease. So I got a couple more questions before we wrap up here. And, and, and one of them is, when do you think then this is all, what's the end game in mind? Is there, is there going to be a continuation? Is there going to be a, like we discussed earlier, uh, another virus that's going to come out because of the vaccinations going out like crazy, that it's going to create some? Is there, or are we going to finally, hopefully wind down and can get back to whatever normal was? Uh. We would have seen that already. Now, I'm encouraged that some countries are rolling back their restrictions, such as the UK, okay? For whatever reason, give credit where credit is due. Uh, and other countries have been doing the same. That's hopeful, but why are, they, why are we pushing it here? Again, it's, it's, it's not a health agenda, it cannot be. If there were a health agenda, they wouldn't be mass inoculating every single hu living human being they wouldn't be so rigid about exemptions. In other words, they, they should accept any exemption, right? If you come up with a, either a religious or a medical exemption, they should say, okay, fine, you're out. Uh, they're not, they're not. They reject most exemption requests. And I know because I've written quite a few and they're almost always rejected out of hand. Some succeed, some, some succeed with appeal, but why should that be necessary? You should be able to opt out freely. This is supposed to be a free country. Now, the fact that they are pushing this so aggressively 
to me means, and I, I just base this on deductive reasoning for the most part, that there's a very malignant agenda at play here, not about health. So what is it about? Why are they so aggressively pushing the shot? Look at the World Economic Forum. Look at, um, well, you know, obviously one motivation is money, no question about it. Pfizer has made more money than they've ever made in their history and ever will make. And these companies, uh, you know, like Moderna never had a product on the market. They're now multi 20, 30 billion dollar company. Uh, so there's huge profit here. And that's a huge part of the motivation for sure. Uh, <clears throat> Peter Bregan writes about China being behind a lot of this. And they are, I believe. I mean, they, of course, started the virus. They created the virus with our help and they pushed it out on the world. This is without doubt, okay, there's no discussion about this. They let the virus out into the world, whether by accident or by intent, it doesn't matter, okay? It's the result that counts. And what did they do? Then they also then pushed aggressively the lockdown concept. So this is what was part of their plan to destroy the West and destroy the Western econ economic system to get rid of Trump. They were successful there. Uh, that was a big part of it. And what, what now? Well, you know, we know that Bill Gates is behind a lot of this. He, he finances WHO. Uh, he finances the Gavi group, the, the vaccine group. He's been pushing vaccines his entire career, pretty much. And he, we know that he's into depopulation. We know that a lot of people are, are into the depopulation movement. They feel that human beings are a plague on the planet. And to save the planet, we need to uh, reduce the human population. Are they giving these mRNA vaccines in China? No, they're not. They're not. Are they giving them in Russia? No, they are not. Why are we getting them? Why the push to vaccinate our military? Right, you have to ask questions. You cannot just accept this as being normal. None of it is normal. So there must be an agenda at play. And you can put two and two together as well as I can. Totally. I always tell people, just follow the money. It leads to everything and give you your answers. How can the public, how, general public or individuals um, like myself and others help you guys and help, help get the message out to kind of wake people up in a sense to have them... Um, you know, start to shift gears, start to just ask questions. That's always been my thing since it started. It was just, I, I never wanted to say what things were. I was always more like, just ask questions. Just, you're going to, you're going to start. If you start asking questions, things aren't going to make sense to you. You're going to start to go, what is going on here? And you're going to want to ask more questions. So what would you suggest for people, people listening on this podcast, what can they do to help, um, get help with just helping you, what you guys do. And also just in general, helping the, you know, get information out and so forth. Yeah, well, the organizations uh, that are fighting this most uh, effectively and aggressively are America's Frontline Doctors. So go to that site, AFLDS.org, and uh, become a member and donate. It's, you're going to get a lot of information just on that site, and you're going to get regular uh, letters and emails uh, to tell you exactly what we're up to and what's going on. Uh, and donations are the lifeblood of the organization, as are most of these for most of these organizations. Other organizations that I strongly recommend you support, the Frontline Critical Care Consortium, FLCCC.org, I believe. Uh, they are also a tremendously important group and in terms of putting out protocols that help doctors treat all the manifestations, not only of COVID, but also the post-vax syndrome and long COVID. So get, get behind them. The Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, aapsonline.org. This is a venerable organization that I've been a part of for over 20 years that has been fighting for independent medical practice and, and the patient-physician relationship, which is uh, incredibly threatened at this point. And the only uh, pushback we've had is from a group like this and the handful of independent doctors that are still out there. And one of the reasons why doctors have gone along with this very uh, nasty protocol uh, and the do nothing protocol for the uh, outpatients is because they're employed. They're working for the man 
in some sort of a hospital or corporate setting, and they are being forced to follow the guidelines. And as I wrote in one of my op-eds, following the guidelines has become the new, I was just following orders, right? This is, a, this is what they're saying. They're just following the guidelines. They do not think for themselves anymore. So aapsonline.org is an excellent organization to support. And Truth for Health Foundation, uh, which is, uh, among other things, fighting this medical imprisonment that has been going on, that patients are ending up in the hospital getting diagnosed with COVID and then having their family members excluded from even seeing them. This is absolutely outrageous. It should not happen. There is no excuse for it. Family members must be given access to their loved ones in the hospital setting. And uh, Truth for Health Foundation, by, uh, founded by Elizabeth Lee Leet, V-O-I-E-T, very dear friend and wonderful doctor, uh, are fighting this uh, on the front line. And this is a huge battle because uh, it's very hard to get access to even to these patients to help them. And they're getting, as we said earlier, substandard and even uh, uh, injurious care. So these are the organizations that I would strongly recommend backing. And then also contact your representative because this recent mandate, uh, this recent memo, I should say, from the Department of Homeland Security is federal. So contact your representatives in Congress and demand that they push back against this. This is Stalinist, not American. No one, no one should ever be threatened for having a contrary viewpoint. It is absolutely outrageous. Yeah, it defies against. It's it's more communistic like approach than it is uh, a, a, a democracy a democracy type of approach with that. Um, I will have for all the listeners, I'll have all those links and everything to connect to in the show notes. Dr. Amling, this has been a pleasure. I thank you uh, for you to take time to come on to join us and share with our, 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 our fan base here. And but more importantly, all the work you guys are doing to fight this tyranny, to fight this uh, overreach and everything that's been going on in America today and how it's just has shifted, shifted everything we, you know, the control aspect to it all. Uh, thank you for being a light to share some wisdom and information to um, keep things science instead of what I like to call, we've moved from a scientific world to a consensus scientific world. And uh, you definitely shared that today. And I just want to thank you again. My pleasure, Vic. Great talking with you. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you found this episode to be inspirational, pay it forward by sharing with someone that you know can benefit from this. If this is your first time tuning in, please follow us, connect with us so you don't miss another amazing episode. And until next time, keep rocking and rolling. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you found this episode to be inspirational, pay it forward by sharing with someone that you know can benefit from this. If this is your first time tuning in, please follow us, connect with us so you don't miss another amazing episode. Until next time, keep rocking and rolling.